Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Clarissa Ryle Hayward is a professor of political science at Washington University. That job gave her a front row seat for the protests and disruption that followed the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014. She watched as activists blocked highways, demonstrated at a symphony performance, and even interrupted brunch at fancy restaurants. They called that last technique black brunch, and the idea was to force people in upscale, quote-unquote, white spaces to pay attention to black pain. Do protests like this work? And if so, why do they work? That's a really timely subject once again, and not just in St. Louis. And earlier this year, Clarissa Hayward published a paper on this subject. She called it Disruption. What is it good for? And she joins us today to answer just that question. So Clarissa Hayward, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you start your paper by talking about protest techniques that are much different than the classic lunch counter sit-in. Why focus on these? That's a great question, and I think one of the reasons I focused on it in the paper was I heard so many people raising issues about those kinds of protests, saying things like, I support the message of the protesters, but shutting down a highway or interrupting brunch seems to me like a bad way to do it. So I wanted to explore what, if anything, was the political work that was done by disruptive actions that are not necessarily popular actions. So what's been the conventional wisdom on how protests and disruption lead to change? I think a really widespread view that a lot of people share intuitively before we think too deeply about it is that in order for a protest or a political action to work, it's got to win really widespread public sympathy. It's mm-hmm. got to be something that's popular. So you gave the example of a lunch counter sit-in. A lot of people will reach for that, or they'll reach for one of these other sort of iconic actions like the Birmingham campaign in 1963. And they'll say the reason those work is, well, because the public could see that the you know, anti-heroes were the bad guys and that the activists were morally righteous, and so it was a very popular protest. And you've got a different view on this. Maybe maybe the right word is a ex- more expansive view. You can see a way that these protests work even when the activists aren't the clear-cut um, good guys being beaten by bad guys with fire hoses, that um, the good guys might be the guys disrupting brunch. So, so walk us through um, how models like that can work. Yeah, I love the, the black brunch example because in that instance, the white brunch eaters seem perhaps to most observers just to be more neutral. Like they're not Bull Connor. They're sitting there eating food, which is, you know, a commonplace activity. So my idea, as you said, it's not that the commonplace view is 100% wrong, but that it's really incomplete in important ways. So I argue that disruptive political actions like black brunch even if they're not the kind of action that garners really widespread public support and and popularity, can shift the terms of public political discourse. And they can do that really by forcing people um, or some people to pay attention to issues that they usually ignore. And I argue even more to the point to force some people to pay attention to issues that they're motivated to ignore, that they have maybe an unconscious motivation to not want to pay attention to. You talk a lot about this idea of willful ignorance, um, the white person who might choose to look away and and not engage with how they've sort of benefited from the system or how the system is, um, you know, not fair. (laughs) How do you how do these disruptions take on that person and sort of challenge them where they're at? 
Okay, yeah, you're right. That's a really important idea that I've thought about. And it's really commonly called willful ignorance, which is the phrase that you use. And we hear that a lot, I think, even just, you know, even if we're just reading on Twitter or something like that. That idea is that, you know, I am I'm willfully ignorant about something, like perhaps a moral wrong that I'm complicit in. I use the term motivated ignorance, and I think the reason I do that is really twofold. It's because I want to um, acknowledge that this idea is closely related to kind of a bigger idea that's called motivated reasoning. So there's a lot of evidence from psychologists that all people, when we reason, we don't do it in a very unbiased, even-handed way. Instead, we tend to seek out and we tend to really pay attention to evidence that supports beliefs that we have a preference to hold. So just to give a really quick example, say I support a particular political candidate, that candidate makes a big blunder in a debate, I will, um, and there's wide, you know, really um, resilient kind of evidence that I will do this, that I will tend to downplay the significance of that blunder. So I like to call this motivated ignorance, both to signal that this is related to the idea of motivated reasoning, and also to signal that it's not consciously willful. So the idea isn't that I say to myself, in my mind, I'm going to deliberately not pay attention to this thing. Um, So let me give an example, maybe that's not related to the current moment to illustrate. Mm -hmm. I might be motivated to ignore readily available evidence about the conditions, the sweatshop labor conditions under which people are laboring to make the clothing that I wear. And the idea is that I might have a principled objection to those conditions, but I also might have a motivation not to pay attention to it because it's very convenient for me to purchase this inexpensive clothing that's easy to get. Um, So that's sort of the idea of motivated ignorance, and just to kind of double down on the idea that it really only works if I'm not consciously willful about it. I have Mm -hmm. to not know, and here I'm quoting um, a philosopher by the name of Tawana, but I have to also not know that I don't know. So in other words, I have to be not consciously aware that I'm ignoring this piece of um, data. So you're a protester, you disrupt my brunch, or you block the highway that I'm on, and I'm sort of forced to pay attention to this issue, but a lot of people in those cases, they're actually angry that their nice brunch has been disrupted, or the highway has been disrupted. How does then that um, that discomfort end up leading to political change? Okay, great question. Kind of a big, complicated question, right? So the the main idea is that it's going to enable those protesters who interrupted your brunch sort of to get media attention, whether through mainstream media and or new media, social media, and to do what is called in political science agenda setting. Mm. So the idea there is that we get the protesters are able to get onto the political agenda and to get public political discourse focused on this issue. So in this case, we're talking about systemic um, state violence against black people, this issue that previously was not the focus of public political discourse. So even if I'm not happy about my brunch being interrupted, even if an onlooker doesn't view the brunch interrupters the same way that they might view the SCLC, 
um, in the Birmingham case. Nevertheless, this issue suddenly is able to garner attention that it didn't before. I thought it was very interesting. You quoted um, Frances Fox Piven, who's very well known in your field, and she blamed the two-party system for suppressing some of these conflicts, the the treatment of, um, say, minorities, things like that, that everybody kind of has a vested interest in not dealing with them until they're forced to deal with it. Does that sort of uh, ring true in this moment of time? I think it really does. I think she's really um, highlighted something that's very important about how this process works in the American case. So we have a two-party system in the U.S., and what that means in terms of just strategies for political elites, so think about the Democratic Party in the 1960s, um, or think about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party right now. What it means for them is they've got to find a way to cobble together an electoral majority that's made up of pretty strange bedfellows, okay? So just think about Biden in this present moment. Mm. He needs to try to win the votes of people who are to the left of the median Democratic voter and also independent voters and maybe even some moderate Republicans. And in order to do that, this is um, Piven's point, uh, his strategy's got to be to try to avoid conflicts that would um, threaten his ability to disrupt, to, to bring together that coalition. And so these conflicts sort of being put at the fore, he can't really ignore them at that point. Exactly. So that is like a key point of what a disruptive political protest can accomplish, even if it's not super popular, is it can force onto the political agenda an issue that elites are going to be incentivized by the two-party system to try to suppress. Hmm. So these current protests, um, they are going on all over the country. Do you get the sense that they are working um, under this model that you've got and, and in the court of public opinion? You know, I really do think they are working. And I sort of think two things are going on here. So I think they are accomplishing this agenda-setting task, which was the main focus of that paper that you mentioned at the beginning. Um, So they're generating enormous amounts of media coverage and shifting the terms of political discourse back to draw the public's attention back to this issue that we've periodically been paying attention to, you know, especially since 2014. Um, So I think that's one thing they've been doing. I also think that in this case, they've, it might be too early to say, but it seems like maybe they are also winning that public sympathy piece of it, which could actually um, sort of do what we said the conventional view demands of all disruptive politics, which is actually sort of enable the, or sort of prompt the public to identify with and be sympathetic with the protesters. Um, so, so for example, it seems like right now, there is pretty strong bipartisan support for a fairly broad range of uh, police reforms. Mm-hmm. And that might indicate more than anything, these protests are working. And that would, you know, your framework for this, it, it speaks to why. It's, it's just, it's, it's really been fascinating to read this paper in light of everything that's going on now. You must feel like, man, I'm just so timely in my academic interests. <laughs> you know, um, I have a feeling that whenever one writes a paper about these kinds of issues that we've been dealing with since the 1960s and, be, and long before, that the moment will come back. And I, I, I would love to, uh, to reach the moment in our society where these issues are not relevant, especially when we're talking about systemic racial injustice. But at the moment, yes, I think this is one of the major issues that we're grappling with. Well, Clarissa Ryle Hayward of Washington University's Political Science Department, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.